Hi, thank you for tuning in to the Finding Harmony podcast with me, your host, Harmony Slater. Well, hello. I am so happy you're here. Welcome to the Finding Harmony podcast. I'm just incredibly excited to introduce you to our guest today. We have an amazing author, Carrie Kelly. She is the founder of Citizen Well, a movement that is democratizing well-being for all. She is a descendant of generations of firemen and first responder and has dedicated her life to kicking down doors and fighting for justice. She is the author of an awesome book, which you all need to get, called American Detox, The Myth of Wellness and How We Can Truly Heal. And so Carrie is recognized across communities for her inspired work where she's bridging transformational practice with social justice. And so we're going to get into it today. We are really going to talk about what it means to be well, not just personally, but as a community, as a society, and how we can bring well-being into social and political action Um, where we can work in collaboration with different communities, with spiritual leaders, and how we need to make um, our policymakers um, come into this wellness space, not only to transform themselves, but to transform our systems from the inside out. So this is a juicy, juicy episode, and I know that you are going to feel incredible Um, listening to Carrie Kelly. You're going to hear all about her passion and you're going to feel inspired uh, by her energy and her enthusiasm and her dedication to fighting for justice and showing up in the world in this wonderful way. And if you're wondering how Carrie has created the time and the space in her life to be on committees, to write books, um, to be so actively involved in organizing around issues of racial and economic injustice, to create more justice, to bring awareness to universal health care as a human right, um, civic engagement, uh, protests, all of the things that she's out there doing. And you're wondering, how on earth can I have time in my life to do all the things that I need to do um, and be a part of creating change in social justice matters or even just having time for your personal self-care practice to give you the energy and the stamina to uh, walk into the world and show up in the way that you want to show up and be present. And if you would like to optimize your time and really take advantage of organizing your days and your weeks uh, in a way that is going to really benefit you on an emotional level, on a physical level, um, in every way, shape, and form, then I would encourage you to jump in to Time Genius with Marie Forleo. I've created a mastermind group to go alongside her Time Genius program. And when you sign up 
for Time Genius this week, you will get that extra bonus of being a part of a mastermind group where you'll get the support, the guidance, um, feedback, as well as encouragement during each of the modules so that you make it to the finish line. There's five modules. The program is going to um, be for the next couple of weeks until the end of October, but our mastermind group will continue on for three more weeks so that you get that support to go through all of the modules at your own pace, at your own time, so that you too can really take back control of your life, of your mental capacity, of your time, and plan and schedule into your days the things that are going to feed your soul, feed your heart, that are going to infuse your life with joy, with time that you love, with um tasks that you enjoy, you know, learning to do the things that we have to do, but do it from a place where we feel spacious, where we feel like this is a part of my self-care, you know, changing our beliefs and our mindset around time is so vital to feeling well. And it also allows us to actually do more in less time when we're not stuck in that old thinking, in that feeling like things are heavy, like things are a heavy obligation or heavy responsibility. When we learn to let go of the things we need to let go of, to say no to the things that we don't really want to do and we don't need to do, create some compassionate boundaries around our time, around our tasks, and then approach all of the tasks and things that we're doing in our life with a sense of freedom, with a sense of ease, with a sense of excitement, like I really want to do this job or I really want to do this thing for this person. It helps to um, make the task itself feel light and feel joyful and then we don't feel like we're in this time stress all the time. <laughs> so I always say time a lot when I talk about time genius, but it is about time. It's also about energy. It's also about um, taking 100 percent responsibility for how we're spending our time, taking 100 percent responsibility for our schedule and learning to create before we consume, learning to do the things we need to do that we want to do before we sit back and take in other people's information or respond and react to other people's demands for our time. We all have the same amount of hours per week. 168 hours per week that are the basic building blocks for creating a joyful and meaningful life. So it's time to really get serious, to sit down, to look at how we're spending our time. You know, we need to sleep. We need to get in good sleep, which is about 56 hours of sleep per week, which means that we have 112 hours of time. If we even subtract 40 hours for our work week, if we want to schedule 40 hours just to do work and focus on our job, on our career, on our work commitments, that still leaves 72 hours of time per week that we're not sleeping, that we're not at work. How are you spending that 72 hours of time? You can do a lot in 72 hours per week. And so within Time Genius, we're going to look at 
time tracking. We're going to look at setting a new vision for how you're spending your time and looking at how you want to consciously design your life. This is amazing. This is an amazing program. It's an amazing opportunity to really get focused with how you want to spend your time, what you want to create, what you want to call in to your daily life, and then do it. Create those big chunks where you can really commit to focusing on it. So I hope you'll join me inside Time Genius Program. Jump into my mastermind, get the bonus workshop, um, get that daily support, and uh, become a time genius, you know, become a wizard. Have people look back and think, how on earth is this person doing all of these things? Um, it's, It's an amazing feeling to look back on your year and feel like, man, I did so much and it felt so joyful and so easy. Um, I want that to be your experience too. So Time Genius, the doors close this Thursday, October 13th. So be sure to sign up before this Thursday to get into my mastermind and get all of the great bonuses that go along with the Time Genius program. Marie herself has several bonuses that she is offering um, within the Time Genius program. So it's all there for you. Uh, I can't wait to see you inside the course. Take back your time, take back your power, and then you can be a force for good and change in the world, just like Carrie Kelly. Hi, welcome to the Finding Harmony podcast. I'm your host, Harmony, and today we have... You have to introduce your co-host. You do this every time. You get so excited about a guest and you just like railroad me. And then I find out in post that you've edited me out of the out of the show. Entire on, to- on top of it. Is someone Carrie. else here? I don't see anybody else. Harmony. Is is that is there an echo in the room? I think I'm maybe. Right like a ghost. Carrie, how the hell are you? Oh my God. I'm so good. I'm really happy to be here with y'all. Would you oh, so allow me the honor, please, of introducing you to the show? To our It depends. I've got I've got your LinkedIn up. I'm just gonna read from it. Oh, okay. Now, the professional bio. Uh my old friend Carrie Kelly, who we were once robbed together on an on like some mountain in India. Carrie is the founder of Citizen Well a movement to mobilize the well-being community into a powerful force for change. Her work was sparked on 9-11 when she lost her fireman stepfather in the towers. And she quickly discovered the power of mindfulness, not just as a tool for personal healing, but as a catalyst for collective change. Since then, Carrie has worked passionately across communities to fight for justice and well-being. Mm. And you also strike me as the kind of try-hard who works so diligently and and 14 hours a day is doing something that you're actually the candidate for a detoxing from well-being. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> I, I'm pretty sure that's the point of this entire book to some extent, you know, at least the kind of well-being that we've inherited from dominant yeah. culture, that one. Yeah, Not so the real kind. Your book is called The Myth of Wellness and called How- American Detox. I'm no, so glad you did your homework. Yeah, right? <laughs> it's called American Detox. American Detox. Yeah. What well, seems like everyone that listens to this show and then everyone that we have on this show is uh, 
talking about the practicalities of having a wellness lifestyle, a uh, a spiritual practice, and is com- completely incapable of of carving out fifteen minutes to do it. <laughs> I love that. I, I relate to that completely. Right? It's so challenging to with all of the the wellness practices and self care practices and all of the things that like we're fed that we should be doing for ourselves. Um, I feel like there's just like, I've run out of hours in the day if I do them all. <laughs> if you That's do right. one of them, you don't, you don't have time for one of them. That's can right. you, can yeah. you tell us how this book came to be and, and, uh, and what you're, what you're trying to tell us? Well, I, w- I would say it came to be out of my own, you know, desperate yearning to be well, I think as, we all share, you know, I'm sure those are the people that you're talking to. Those are your listeners. And, um, and I think given that it's a $4.4 trillion global industry, which is mind boggling, Mm. right? There's a lot of people who are not well, um, or who are, you know, desperate and yearning, uh, to feel different, um, or to have, you know, to have some meaning right in this sort of like wild world that we live in right now. And so that was sort of my on-ramp, right, into mm-hmm. this journey, but also into writing this book. And my book, you already mentioned it, my book begins on 9-11, which was like a big um, wake-up call for me. You know, I was mm-hmm. on sort of like a hardcore corporate climbing <laughs> pathway, mm-hmm. um, checking all of the boxes of what I was told I should be and what I should do and what it meant to be successful and how I was supposed to design the all-American life. And 9/11 was a, an enormous disruption um, of that of that pathway and of that vision and um, and sort of uh, caused me to start to question everything like question you know what it meant to be safe and what it meant to be normal and what it meant to have you know be successful and what it meant to be well and so that was sort of the impetus for for my for this sort of relentless seeking that I embarked on after 9-11 that um, I write about in this book. And that took me to all sorts of weird places, including India, where you and I had our <laughs> our very particular kind of adventure, um, <laughs> which we'll talk about at some point in the we show. Should, Later should. on in the show, we have to yeah. talk about that because that was like a real, you know, obviously um, profound <laughs> moment in my life. Um, yeah. But But, you know, this book is about what you just named, which is like, we don't know how to take care of ourselves, right? Um, And it's hard to take care of ourselves in the the, the current, you know, world that we live in. But it's also about how we don't know how to take care of each other Hmm. and how wellness isn't just about juice fasts and kind of doing all of the protocols that we're trying to make space for in our daily lives. It's also about getting political, right? It's about uh, creating the conditions where people have you know, basic human needs, right? A living wage, access to healthy food, clean water, you know, uh, voting rights, um, and how, um, for whatever reason, you know, the dominant culture of wellness, the the Western idea of wellness, the modern interpretation of wellness, has sort of divorced the idea of of well being, right, from the collective, mm-hmm. and so this book is a call to return to that, right? It's it's it, it's you know written. Um, you know, under the premise that like none of us can be well unless all of us are well. And when so many of us in this particular moment are struggling to survive, right, much less be well, um, you know, are, are all of our, you know, wellness, desperate, you know, rituals and protocols and 
um, hacks, are they actually making us well or are they making us worse? Mm. Yeah, I love that. That that idea that, you know, we get so um, focused on our own, you know, personal self-care rituals and routines and and habits that we forget that, you know, there's other beings in the world, like our neighbors or our children or our spouses. And it becomes instead of something that's, you know, feeding our community, like feeding ourselves to feed our community in some way, we're just becoming more and more self-centered and like more and more divorced from what's going on around us. And and isolated, right? It doesn't feel Mm -hmm. good to feel isolated, to feel alone, um, uh, to feel like, you know, we can't count on anyone, right? To feel Mm -hmm. like we're not being taken care of by the systems that we're a part of. Mm -hmm. And, And ironically, right, the many crises we are navigating right now, whether it be a global pandemic, right, or a climate crisis, right, mm-hmm. or um, deep, right, inequality, mm-hmm. um, are revealing our interdependence, right? Like, so like all yeah. of those like solutions and protocols that were sold, right, that we can solve all of our problems by personal remedies, right? are ridiculous, right? In the face of like deeply interdependent and complex global problems, right? And so it's like, it's also like, it's a myth, right? Like, it's not just like limiting, but it's false. And it's really harmful because, you know, individual anything isn't actually going to help us confront the world that we're living in right now. Yeah. And I like that, that, you know, idea too. Like we, even though it seems like we're doing something individual, we're actually not because we're deeply interconnected. So, you know, us like retreating into our own little personal sanctuary, um, even though it might seem like we're doing something individual and separating off, it's actually still impacting totally everything around us. Which is, which is why, right. Self-care you know, just to make this conversation even more complex, right? It's Mm -hmm. why taking care of ourselves is a part of how we take care of each other, right? So this Mm -hmm. isn't a call to like, just take care of other people and martyr yourself and ignore, right? (laughs) Right. This is all, this is like, this is like, hey, take responsibility for your shit, right? Like take care Mm -hmm. of yourself, like pull yourself back together, repair what has been wounded, like do that part as a essential part of the whole of who we are, of how we mm-hmm. take care of the collective, right? So self-care isn't self, right? It's mutual, yeah. right? It's inherently interconnected with the ways in which we're also tending to and healing the whole of who we are as you know, society and as humanity. Mm-hmm. I love that. Um. I think in your book too, you talk a lot about the inequality of the wellness industry as well and, and how, you know, so many of the focuses and points of focus um, that we have or that we're fed, you know, as, as, you know, like the yoga, for example, the yoga classes and the studios and, and it's, it's very unequal because there's large portions of, you know, our population as like in the West, but also in other, other less, you know, advanced advantaged countries yeah um that these things just really aren't accessible and they're not possible and totally totally and right and which you know there's so much we can say about that right because like i feel like you know we we have to acknowledge that like the wellness that we're exposed to right in the in the west right you're all are Mm -hmm. y'all are in canada and i'm in the united states Mm -hmm. right now um you know pulls from the medicine culture rituals wisdom mm-hmm. right of indigenous and southeast asian 
um, peoples, right? Yeah. And so like a like so much of what we understand to be wellness now in the Western world has become divorced from mm. its origin. And to your point, it's become inaccessible, right? It's become commodified. It's become a luxury product. Mm -hmm. You know, there's most wellness things I cannot afford, right? And I'm, right. I'm particularly privileged, right? But, you know, Goop is sort of like outside of my reach at this point. Right. Um, yeah. but you wouldn't the, think a thing called Goop would be outside of anyone's reach. I know, I know. And yet, you know, um, and, you know, ha having said that, you know, the other thing I just want to say about the way that we understand wellness is that when I started organizing around this idea of democratizing wellness and, um, and uh, you know, and politicizing wellness, I was working with uh, uh, the Fight for 15 movement to raise the minimum wage to $15, which the federal minimum wage in the United States is still $7.25, if you can imagine, like poverty pay. Like yeah. you wonder why there's such stark inequality and it's by design. Yeah. Yeah, yes. absolutely by design. So I was working with fast food workers, right? So this is like, you know, you think about like kale eating, you know, quinoa right. eating, wellness people. And one of the first campaigns we did at Citizen Well was partner up with fast food workers to help raise the minimum wage. And we would we would um, inquire a ton into like, you know, what would it be for us to make some of our wellness practices accessible to the folks who are on the front lines, who are struggling to feed their families and pay their bills? Like, how can we offer them meditation and, and healthy food and all these things? And what we heard back from them is, we're, is they're like, I don't need that to be well. I need a living wage, right? So right. I, I also want to like disrupt the idea that like wellness is only like these rituals, right? Yeah. Because a lot of people will say, that for them, well-being is a house, right? Like mm -hmm. it's housing, it's access to universal health care, right? Yeah, it's um, having a, a fair, you know, uh, wage that allows them to put money, uh, to put food on the table, to put you know savings in the bank, to buy a car, and all the. So I just want to like name that too. That like I think because of the privilege of wellness, those of us who have access to a lot of what we understand to be Western wellness right now aren't struggling to survive, right? So we don't have to think about basic human needs, right? Or the mm -hmm. basic con the basic dignified conditions that people need to, to survive, much less thrive, um, right? And so we instead, we assume, right, that uh, what mm -hmm. other people need is meditation, or we assume right. that what other people need is <laughs> yoga, right? Yeah. Which, is, which is like, you know, that which just falls in the footsteps of like Christian missionary work and like white <laughs> saviorism, right? Mm -hmm. So anyway, so that was a big big teacher for me, like working yeah. with different movements and solidarity has been an amazing teacher for me and has helped me redefine what wellness looks like, right? It's mm -hmm. not just, you know, the thing that you buy in Lululemon or the yoga class that you go to. It's, mm -hmm. it's also the ways in which we advocate for and fight for, you know, um, you know, healthy living conditions, right? Yeah. That, that give people what they need. Yeah, I think when we met, um, it was when I was working with the Joyce Foundation, and we were working on um, bringing uh, something really very far down the list on terms of personal needs and living needs, which is meditation to school kids. Um, I, I think at a certain point in in the journey that I had, going to Title One schools and working with kids who who clearly have needs for sanitation, food, housing, uh, and 
and care. You know, just are they being cared for by by a, a, an adult? I think at the at the root uh, of it or the end point of the journey, I, I felt like how I was able to rationalize the work and find meaning in the work is that I was I was trying to help them uh, survive an encounter with an authority figure mm-hmm. and live through it. Mm-hmm. And that came down to like a, a sense of what are your essential needs? When you encounter a police officer in the street, um, maybe not for a, a, a white girl in the, in the Haight-Ashbury, uh, when she meets a police officer, death isn't a likely outcome. But certainly, uh, you know, a 15-year-old boy in Milwaukee, uh, that is on the table. Mm-hmm. And so... Um, I, it was, mm-hmm. again, I think, I feel like it's this, as you were talking about, like, it was a come to Jesus moment. Like, what is this actually for? Mm-hmm. You know, what am I actually doing? What, how am I actually being of service? Mm-hmm. And I, I had to think about that when I was, mm-hmm. when I was offering that work. I, I really appreciate that, right? Because I mean, what I hear you doing is is bringing like analysis and context, right, to the way in which we're um, working with this medicine and these rituals and these practices, and also like sharing them with other people, some of whom don't have the same lived experience that mm-hmm. that we have, mm-hmm. right? And and to me, what I hear you acknowledging is both the inner need and the outer need, right? And I often emphasize the outer need, right, because. The dominant culture of wellness has often pointed me only towards the inner. Like you just mm-hmm. need to change your mind and transform your inner climate and you are going to be good to go, right? Which we know for a lot of people is just not true, right? Because the system is designed to exclude them, to oppress them, to exploit them, mm-hmm. right? So like like it's not enough to just change your mind and have a different perspective, right? Mm-hmm. When the, the system is literally targeting you. Yeah. Um, and to your point, there is also a role, right, for these practices and helping people, whether it's find peace, right, whether it's gain perspective, whether it's build resilience, right, mm-hmm. whether it's just find a moment of quiet in like an extremely noisy life or, or environment. Or learning how to remember to take a breath when totally. a person with a badge is speaking to you. That's right. Or, or when you're, you know, in a conversation with your girlfriend, right? Like, yeah. so like, I just, yeah. so like, um, also helps a hundred percent. Right. And so, um, so anyway, so I, there's a role, right. For these practices, I think in all of our lives, and this is not mm-hmm. to dismiss that this is to, to say, and right. Um, mm-hmm. the inner work, the individual work, the personal work, right. Mm-hmm. Isn't the only part of this story, right. We also, I'm even thinking about what you're saying and I'm like, Yes, we want people to respond to law enforcement in ways that are centered, right, and mm-hmm. resourced, right? And like we don't want to put the burden only on people who are being unlawfully stopped, right? So it's like so to me I'm like, okay, so what are we also doing to confront a law enforcement right that is like yeah. egregiously pulling people over for no reason, right, with right. no cause. So anyway, so to me it's like how do we have conversations that acknowledge the systemic context that we live yeah. in and the and the desperate need for healing, right? Right. In this and you were such a big part of this. You were like, our schools need to heal, right? Like mm-hmm. we need to help our schools heal. We can't just help our kids heal, right? The schools are a big toxic problem also. So right. that's sort of the wellness that I'm sort of putting forth in this book is like, how do we cultivate a practice, right? That is 
inner in the way in which we build a capacity, right, to be mm-hmm. in the world with more skill and discernment, right, um, and presence? And how do we also become more skilled in the way in which we confront the many barriers, right, mm-hmm. in the external world, in the systems and in the culture that we're a part of, right, um, that are are holding us back, right, from yeah. from wellness. It, to your point, we we had a um, we had a an officer um, on the show, Kate Winner, who was a police officer in um, in Britain, and we asked her kind of a similar question, and she said, "Well, you know, when you militarize." Um, a police force, then uh, you you no longer need strategies of de-escalation because you, you have an assault rifle. And so her main job was de-escalating Forced. conflict. And because she didn't have a she gun. She didn't have a gun. <laughs> you know, so that, it, that there's intentionality into yeah, totally. the way the police force is constructed. We purposely totally. don't give you guns because it makes you have to work work and do social work. That's right. And use your breath and you do, use de-escalation strategies, yeah. use mindfulness strategies, just be able to have a conversation with someone yeah. who's freaked out. Right. Well, and I feel like also like what you're saying is also making me think about like the interconnectedness between all of the issues, right? So when you talk about mm-hmm. the militarization of police, I think about the military industrial complex, right? That that makes up for the United States at least a very significant portion of mm-hmm. our investment, right? Which says a yeah. lot about what we value, right? right? When I think about the police force, I think about its its legacy, right? That is rooted in slave patrols. Yeah, exactly. And in enforcing racism, right? So I'm just like naming how, and then I'm thinking about like the prison industrial complex, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right, and, um, um, and how that's connected to the medical industrial complex and the way in which we even have used, I'm thinking about what's happening with abortion now in the United States, right? That we're now policing pregnant people right so so like you can see kind of like these like tones of force violence control um incarceration and and um removing people right and locking them up right in all aspects of our culture right and you can start to see the the weaving right of the many systems of oppression that are not isolated they're in fact very much linked and in collusion with one another to keep things as they are so i just appreciate Mm. you sort of like you know, like exposing that because I think it's important for us to like, as we become aware of like the world and we see more clearly what's happening, we see the 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 interconnections, the nodes, right, the origins of these issues, um, um, and and the ways in which you know many of them stem from a culture of separation and supremacy and scarcity. You know, yeah. a, a yeah. belief that we're separate from one another, or that we're supreme, right? We're mm-hmm. we're we're above, we're superior, right? Or even this idea that there's not enough to go around, so I have to yeah. enclose and accumulate and protect what I have, right? Like these are like really harmful ideologies that have shaped many and most, right, of our most mm-hmm. harmful systems. Can- can you talk at all about a post that you made about a month ago uh, on your Citizen Well channel, the Do We Hate Our Children? <laughs> Can you talk about that a little bit for us? I mean, I feel like I just, you know, I just kind of talked a little bit about it when I when I talked about how much money we spend on the military industrial complex. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. So it's like when you look at, at how we spend, and I'm not saying everything is about how we spend our money or about our budget, right? But that is actually 
evidence of yeah. what we value, right? right? And mm-hmm. when we think about how much money we're spending on education, yeah, um, on or healthcare thinking, or healthcare, <laughs> right? Um, or you know, I'm thinking about like the child credit that you know, like how we how mm-hmm. much we spend on help helping subsidize people's lifestyles economically, right? So that they yeah. have what they need. How much we spend on healthy food in schools or childcare, right? Or paid family leave. Um, um, or preschool, right, for all kids, right? Like what that says is that we don't value the care and nurturance mm-hmm. of our children or our families or of future generations, right? What we care about is corporate power. What we care about is military, you know, control, right? What we care about is, um, you know, imperialism and um, and war, right? And so anyway, so I, I feel like- um, and, and, that's- and also to, to that point that- we're still so much a well, forgive me, Harmony. We're, our our country is still so much a byproduct of slavery, Absolutely. and so there's some kids that we support and nurture. Hundred uh, percent. Most of the kids, uh, we want to continue to keep them in a in a slave state. Yeah. So there's an there is like a hierarchy, right, of bodies within this country, mm-hmm. and and there's this great book by Heather McGee called The Sum of Us, mm-hmm. and you know. Some of what I want to say is that even though there's a hierarchy and some people have more proximity to your point to a better education, to healthy food, to power and to privilege and to all the things that we need, most of us are being harmed by this sort of like deeply unequal system. Most of us, right? And if you just look at like how wage, like wages for most people has decreased over time, right? How... (laughs) I'm just like, so I, I want to say that because sometimes I feel like um, it's important to have the nuance of like, we're being impacted differently, but it's also important for us to realize that we're all being impacted yeah, by exactly. systems, right? That, that only, that are controlled and only benefit the elite, because mm-hmm. then it means that we all have skin in the game, right? Yeah. Even if some of us benefit more than others. And that feels really important as we think about like, how do we organize to actually center um, the values, right, and the things that matter most to us, right, like our children, like our well-being and health, right, like um, housing for all people, right, like peace, actually, right, um, or people before profits. And and I wrote that post, I believe, also about um, the 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 gun debate in in the United States, right, which yeah, is of course. an absolutely <laughs> absurd. Um, um, debate, but also a, a very it's horrific- indefensible position to take. It, and a horrific example of the point that I'm making, that yeah. clearly in this country, um, uh, and I don't think a majority of the people, we know that actually a majority of the people um, support gun control, but the people in power, right? The people with control of most of the money, people in control of, of systems, Value guns over people's lives. Well, they're they're leveraging a position on guns to get votes with a particular demographic that uh, reflexively wants a Second Amendment uh, position until their uh, their community, say in Uvalde, is devastated by gun violence, and then their position changes. Yes, and. Um, I think that's true, right? Mm. I think that's the narrative. But 
a majority of Americans, a majority of voters want gun control. And yeah. so in many ways, right, and this was happening when they were failing to, to pass the, the gun legislation in Congress, right? It was like, you know, like like congressmen and politicians were were more beholden to lobbyists, yeah. right? To yeah. donors than they were to the voters themselves. So I think it's I think there are some voters, right, who like love their Second Amendment, right? And they're the loudest on the mm -hmm. right. But in fact, a majority of Americans want gun control. Just like a majority of amendments want a Green New Deal, a majority of Americans support abortion and choice, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. A majority of Americans want like more access to health care. And I just say that because it actually exposes that we have a very corrupt democratic structure right now mm -hmm. that is actually not um, representing the will of the people, right? The will of right. the people is really clear. Um, it's in fact representing a minority rule. Right. And that's a huge problem. Yeah. You know, one thing I wanted to touch on, uh, it just, it came to mind while you were talking about um, uh, fair policy uh, that represents um a model of, of equality. And I was thinking about just our, our community here in, in Canada, in Calgary, in our neighborhood. And I, to be honest, to be perfectly honest, I was walking around our neighborhood and I, and I, I kept saying to Harmony, it's like, you know, there are a lot of like uh, welders and truckers in our neighborhood mm -hmm. and I'm not, this isn't totally the neighborhood I want to live in. And because uh, I'm kind of used to like a more, um, what do you call it, siloed community where people are kind of more like-minded and the homes are all the same. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, this is, um, it's, it's uncomfortable for me, like just that, like say our next door neighbor, we have an expensive home and our next door neighbor has furniture on the, on the lawn. <laughs> and it's like, this is a little, like I'm just very uncomfortable. <laughs> And she said to me, Harmony, do you remember what you said? It's by design. <laughs> mixed, this mixed housing in every mm -hmm. neighborhood. It's like, where can I go to a neighborhood like my mom's though? That's where I want to live. <laughs> mm -hmm. Where are you from? Where did you grow up? Uh, all over. But my mom now lives in a, a Tony neighborhood called Onion Creek, uh, south of Austin, with a lot okay. of other people who golf and are liberal and uh, vote the same way and have nice homes. And nobody has their <laughs> fucking furniture on the lawn. <laughs> and um, uh, like, there's no neighborhood like that here. Well, that doesn't exist. There might, like, there I might buy, be. That. I don't know. <laughs> by policy choice because they want people like I'm friends with Brian next door. I don't want to be, but I am. Brian's because this. I, so uh, we don't listen to the same news, but, um, <laughs> but I'm forced to interact and be friends with someone who is a very, is of a different class and Has education different level, ideology. different ideology. Yeah. And we have to kind of just get along. And that's by, Mm -hmm. Paul, that's by uh, civic design. I think it's amazing. It's I don't awesome. like it, but it's amazing. <laughs> I don't like it. I love, I love that it's at your growing edge, and it's also making me think about how, as how as a so you you were you grew up in the U.S. I did. Okay, right. So how we're we're really trained, right? I'm just thinking about how we're socialized in the U.S. to be really um, like homogenized, right? To yeah. be like seeking sameness all the time. And you know, I grew up in New York, and and you can actually say that like New York is super diverse, and there's lots of different people, but New York is some of the most like segregated 
places, right? Yeah. There's pockets of people, but they're all, you know, they're all tucked into their corners, right? Especially right. given that like different school districts, right? Mm. Um, so like the way that school districts in, in the US work is that they're tied to property taxes, right? So right. like, so I'm, and and then when you think about the history of redlining in the United States, where, where lines were literally drawn around black and brown neighborhoods yeah. for the purpose of like, um, denying resources to those neighborhoods, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm just like, so like by design, right? Segregation was a part yeah. of like urban and rural planning within the United States and remains so as a part of our culture. Um, and yeah, so like I too was socialized in a like super white neighborhood outside of New York, right? Um, the town next to us um, was, you know, a majority people of color, right? So like, and that is intentional, right? Because yeah. actually, if you don't have proximity to people that are different from you or have a different lived experience or a different class experience or a different, you know, then um, you don't have to care about them or give a shit. That's right. Exactly. So like, I just like what you're describing is radical, right? Like, oh yeah. my God, like, what is it to, um, you know, to like, to, to, to literally within your block, right? <laughs> um to have to learn from and bear witness to people who have a completely different political orientation, a right. completely different spiritual orientation, a different class orientation, a different cultural orientation. You know, like, I feel like we could, you know, and, and the U.S. is interesting because we're even in places like New York and San Francisco, and I live in L.A. now, you know, because of how we're socialized and conditioned, we can live in places where there's a great deal of diversity and not see it. Yeah. not pay attention, not care, right? Mm -hmm. Not include, right? Even like when you're on top of each other in a city <laughs> like New York, the how how hard you have to work. Right? Yeah. It's not it's not laziness. You have to actually work really hard to avoid people. You have to work really hard to not see people, right? You have to yeah. work really hard to ignore people. And so anyway, so like what you're describing is fascinating to me and you know, I wish we had more of that here. It, when Margaret Atwood sort of made, turned Canada into this kind of socialist utopia where people would flee to, it wasn't in, in a stretch. It was not a stretch yeah. at all. Having now yeah. living here, and I keep wanting to put on Twitter, it's like you guys should move to Canada. This is a socialist utopia. It is yeah. really, really cool. Not without though its wounds. I'm just thinking about sure. you know, there's like indigenous wounds in Canada, and I would imagine. Yeah. Oh, I don't know. I don't yeah. know what it's like to live in other places because I never have. But I, I do believe white supremacy is happening in lots of different places, and especially Canada. Yeah. Like Harmony's <laughs> dad, for example, fits that um, territory. There's a. I think it's interesting though. Like you know, you're talking about also like following the money to show what you care about and. What what you're investing in and you know when it comes down to when it comes down to it it really does start like at the heart where you're saying like education you know if you invest in schools and invest in mm -hmm. having good public education then yeah. again you're not segregated into this like private education system that only the wealthy can afford that's and right the public system that's considered substandard, you know, everyone will just send their kids to public school because given right. the choice, if the education is good, if it's on par, then why wouldn't you send your kid to public school? And then right. again, you're like more um, exposed to people from different cultures with different backgrounds and, and it becomes a much 
more, um, I guess, compassionate kind of experience than just like, oh, all the rich kids get to go to one school and all the poor kids get to go to another school. And those kids don't get the same education or the same advantages than the ones who have money. Can, exactly. Can you just hold on? <laughs> we have to take a commercial break. Can you can you hold on for the opposite, uh, on the other side? Sure. Okay. In the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge that we live, work, and play on the traditional territories of the Blackfoot Confederacy. Siksika, Kena, Pikani, the Sutinia, the Ioxi, Nakoda Nations, the Metis Nation, Region 3, and all people will make their homes in the Treaty 7 region of southern Alberta. We have to do that. If you have any kind of broadcast public public broadcast in canada that's that's public event that's by rule you have to do that here you have to do a land acknowledgement you have to do a land acknowledgement this is a private event but it's good to acknowledge oh this is this is just a party (laughs) (laughs) i really appreciate you doing that and it's funny because i was just talk i was talking with a, a um a person that i worked with earlier right before this call and and we were talking they were talking about how they've been in a practice of doing land acknowledgements and i don't know if you know this but there's you know like we like to like change our minds about things in the US, you know, and stretch ourselves constantly for the, you know, the land of progress and, Literally. you know, but, um, but, you know, like one of the really cool conversations that's, that's coming out of um, progressive and, uh, and particularly indigenous communities here is how like, like some folks are saying like land acknowledgements are not enough. Right. Oh, and, sure. and, and how like, and I don't know that there's a, people have come up with a solution, but you know what what I'm hearing folks calling for is um, also some you know um, uh, uh, acknowledgement and context around the cost right of of mm-hmm. stolen land of colonized yeah. land right the genocide that's taken place the um, uh, the you know the the destruction um the theft of culture the erasure of people and and so on and so forth and then like what does like reparations and land back look like so like we're having i don't know if that's happening in, in canada also but we're it having does, like this sure. new mo- right yeah. which i i kind of love because it's like you learn a thing i feel this about like anti-racism work too it's like you learn a thing and you're like i think i learned the thing right <laughs> <laughs> and then it's like nope you didn't learn the thing there's more right and, yeah, I, yeah. and I just like i appreciate appreciate that like we're starting to have like a culture where we can hold that there's always more there's always more learning we can always keep like moving the line and doing better in the way that we like heal ourselves and heal each other and so anyway so you just reminded me of that because we're like we're in a, a deep inquiry here around like what does more look like especially in relationship to indigenous rights in relationship to repair and healing yeah. in relationship to land back and uh, redistribution a, of resources and that's it's about a like, hundred thousand per person in canada i don't know exactly what it is, it's about that so. it's 50 to a hundred thousand it depends on your heritage but i mean if you could imagine if you want to do reparations in the united states then giving a hundred thousand would be significant it's a significant figure and not not outside of our budget, honestly. Oh well, of course not. We could just reallocate the entire military industrial yeah. complex budget like and five two per, by two percent of the budget and of the solve military. global poverty, much less yeah. like have a yeah. reparations project. But I really appreciate though that like that conversation. I mean, I appreciate that people are starting to talk more about that conversation. And mm-hmm. as a white person, like I don't know what the number should be. Like I'm just sort of mm-hmm. like not my. It's not for me to decide. But like. 
but that like, look in the last couple of years, like the word reparations is, is, is more mainstreamed. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah. e- and it's even a practice for some people, right. On, on a like micro level. And so anyway, mm-hmm. so I just think that that's, um, that feels really hopeful, right? That like we're yeah. moving in the direction of repair, which feels, you know, when I think about what we're up against and how, um, you know, we're going to be lucky to survive this situation. <laughs> not, not to, not yeah, to lucky put a on our conversation or definitely, anything, but definitely it's less than fifty percent. Like, it's yeah. really, it's yeah. And when you think about like, what do we need to save the future, right? Like I definitely have come to believe that like a part of that is healing the past and repairing mm-hmm. the past. Like we can't just like move forward on with a clean slate. Like we have to like learn from, you know, the, 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 the many wounds, right. That mm-hmm. we've, we've covered up and like we've built over. And, and so what does that look like? Right. To like both go back and repair, right. Mm-hmm. Acknowledge what has been lost, right. And who has been harmed, so that we can build forward in a way that doesn't replicate the same damn thing over and over right. and over again. Yeah, what's fascinating too is it's almost like taking the the individual structures for wellness that we've created, right? Where we're like like healing ourselves of the past traumas or the whatever, all the past stuff and like coming into a, a state of balance and then like, you know, growing from there, whatever sort of, you know, structure you want to put around personal That's wellness right. and then applying that to culture, to society, to social right. organizations, relationships, all of those things. Which was the intention for most of uh, the the from what I understand, right? Mm-hmm. That was the attention for most of the wisdom practices that the modern manifestation of wellness actually comes from. That right. that it was always about the collective, right? It was mm-hmm. always about seva. It was all right. It's always been yeah. about yeah. like interdependence. And yet, to your point, like something along the way got distorted. So yeah, I think actually you're exactly right. Like mm-hmm. the 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 template, if you will, mm-hmm. yeah. that we apply on the small self, the individual mm-hmm. self, in the kind of Western wellness world was intended actually for the 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 big self the interdependent collective self and actually if we can we can replicate that approach to how we Mm -hmm. respond to trauma to how we heal wounds to how we integrate right um then that's a good start yeah can you harmony can you i I love it when you do this can you talk about your (laughs) professor in toronto who talked about the definition of ahimsa ahimsa. it's so so nice yeah dr sham ranganathan he um, he was talking about you know the yoga sutras and it being you know we we when most people read the yoga sutras we kind of read it more as like a an individual sort of practice text and and really relating to like you know that vertical trans- transformation and transcendence you know like that up and out yeah. kind of um, liberation but that that ahimsa isn't just like not doing harm or not you know um participating in harm but it's actually um going against the harm ooh right so ahimsa is like not just the negation but it's also like a disruption of harm yes so if you see harm being done and you're just and the yoga sutras do say this that put a fucking stop to it yeah ahimsa you know (laughs) harm is caused by watching violence and not doing anything by thinking or by actually doing something and so it's not passive yeah it's not passive and there's so many places like you're saying in our culture and our society where harm is is literally being done that we're witnessing that we're watching that we're observing yes it's actually our duty 
as yoga practitioners practicing ahimsa to disrupt that harm, to take action, to do something, to stop the harm from continuing. I want that bumper sticker. And (laughs) yes to everything you're saying. Um, And please send me like, if you can send me more teachings yeah, on that, I yeah, would love sure. that. I mean, I, I write about <laughs> do less harm in the book because, you know, I do a lot of grappling around the legacy of do more good, mm. do gooders, mm. um, uh, do good in. Like I'm thinking about like well-meaning white people, like doing good in the world um, <laughs> and not just the legacy of like Christian missionaries, but like philanthropy and like Silicon Valley coming in, you know, Elon Musk saving the day for everyone. <laughs> right. And, and how... Often, like the stance, I'm thinking about like the the posture, the mm-hmm. embodiment of like do more good, is often very performative and mm-hmm. and just upholds like it doesn't change the the current structure mm. or the status quo. Right. Whereas what you're describing, this active embodiment of ahimsa mm-hmm. of do less harm, right, is inevitably dis- dismantling. It's about like deconstructing. It's about, right? Like it's mm-hmm. about decarcerating. It's about, um, and so I love that. And and when I think about like which 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 pose we need to do more of, right? <laughs> yeah. I think there's a lot of like do-gooding, especially in wellness. Like sure. let's go to another country and, you know, like, yeah. like har- we do horrific things, right? In the name of goodness, yeah. right? Or in the name of good intentions. Mm-hmm. And so like to me, like the much more radical stance, mm-hmm. right? And, and, the, and the stance that I think is going to actually help move us forward is what you're describing, right? It's not this passive, like, don't do anything, Mm -hmm. don't rock the boat. But it's this very intentional, like, when harm is happening, disrupt, right? When systems are holding people back from their potential, like, challenge them, right? Um, uh, When authority, right, is cutting someone down, like, interrupt them, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, so I just like, I love that so much. And and that's, I feel like you just described my entire yoga practice. Yeah, <laughs> I could, I, yeah totally. There's really <laughs> something incredibly powerfully dynamic. Uh, just you and your personality and your activism is, there's, there's no, there's no question that dharma is an issue for you. You're doing what you're supposed to be doing because I, you have the energy store of, you know, like 10,000 kittens. And it's just like, <laughs> it's just like right there for you to, I, I don't have, you know, I don't know. But listen, I go to bed at 8 p.m. Yeah, good for you. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. That's the last thing oh, I would have expected oh, you to say oh, yeah. in the whole of this conversation. But what time do you get up? Five thirty-six. Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. That's, that's good. a good amount. Of, that's good nine that's hours. That's a wellness practice. In that's and of a itself. battery. Yeah, she's making that's, a battery. That's, that's changed my life. She's like yeah. an electric vehicle. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> what my where I wanted to to lead to, and the question I have for you is just to kind of introduce the listeners to you more. Is I think when I met you. Uh, we were doing work together trying to create like a yoga lobbying group mm-hmm. and and to try and influence those kind of positive vibes. And I think you were on, doing off, you were founder of and managing Off the Mat into the world, if that's- Well, I was ED. I was not founder of Off the Mat Executive the director. World. And this right. was this was before Citizen Well? It was. Okay. And I think Yoga Votes was oh, also yeah. after that. And so I just wanted to know- when you started out at the Weather Channel, 
as account <laughs> manager. How did you get from the Weather Channel and account manager? I, I know that your father passed. You decided to do some uh, yoga. Yeah. Your the the reviews on LinkedIn for your work there are phenomenal. At the Weather I Channel. Know, it's like the, the only, Weather it's Channel. It's like the only reviews I ever like. Have they on. loved you there. Listen, and that's that's the job that I want. And so like. I don't Man. know that the people I roll with now are on LinkedIn. Um, that's the thing. That's that's the thing. They're not. <laughs> it's a it's a testament to how old that damn platform is. Can um, you, yeah, so can you my, talk about that evolution professionally yeah. for you? I mean, I talked about it a little bit at the beginning. Like my my former life. I've actually had like a bunch of lives. I'm 47 years old. So like I I've, <gasps> you're the I've, same age. That's right. Oh, 1975. What is 75. your What is your sign? Class of 93. I'm a Taurus. Oh, okay. So you're older than me. I'm a Leo. I just, I'm a cat. I'm a thousand cats. Happy happy birthday coming or just passed? Uh, No, I just, it just passed. Okay. So I'm still celebrating my, my birth. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Your mother did all the work. I know. It's truly like, I just like, it's basically her day. I I just have to serve her. Um, Yeah. So like there were lots of lives and, you know, the first quarter of my life, I spent deeply invested in like this idea of like what it mean what it meant to be successful and the life that I was building and I was yeah. like um you know I, I was like really into uh being powerful and being a corporate you know ass kicker um and climbing the ladder and breaking through glass ceilings and mm-hmm. you know um taking up all the chairs in the board like that. Yeah. Like I was like, a, and I was like a feminist, but I was like hardcore. Like I really yeah. wanted, um, and I, and that was a lot of my conditioning growing up. Like I was, a, I was an overachiever. I was a good student. I was a great athlete. I was, you know, like good, you were, good Catholic. You were in the sock and buskin group at Pell Memorial. <laughs> Is that right? You took part in that? Oh, I love you so much. <laughs> I was in theater. I was in sports. I you was were like, in the sock and buskin. Yeah, you were. I was, totally. I, was um, I was in the French club. I was in the Spanish club. I wow. was, you know, honored yeah. role. You know, I was part in the, of debate, the... the debate club, which I'm sure surprises nobody on this call. Part of the um, Pelham Olympics. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Oh, you were oh like the God. triple A overachiever. Yeah. <laughs> I was, and I was desperate, right? And I think it was a part of like my wanting to fit in, like, like feeling like I had to like deliver on something in order to be seen, in order to belong, in order to fit in. I I also grew up on like the other side of the tracks in a really wealthy town. So like, I mean, my father was a fireman and my mother was a nurse, right? But there were people on the other side of town who got like Mercedes when they were 16, you know, like like a different. So I had a clear class consciousness. And I think I was, you know, when I, I don't, I didn't know this at the time, but I was really motivated to climb out of my lived experience, like to yeah. elevate myself, right. To, 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 you know, to rise above. And so anyway, so I got like really into the corporate world and I wanted to be really successful. I was in sales, you know, I loved, I was going to be pre-law, but then I found sales and I was like, wait a minute, I can litigate with clients and make lots of money and also have fun. Like, why would yeah. I go into law, you know, right. <laughs> which is like the great regret of my entire fucking Absolutely. life and my mother's. <laughs> Um, so anyway, so I did, so I did so much of that. I worked at Clorox. I worked at a lot of different advertising agencies, pushing commercials. Um, I worked at the weather channel. I worked at current TV mm-hmm. when it began with Al Gore, oh, right? Yeah. Which, oh, which, wow. what, what, which, which at that time was like starting to become like, I knew at that time it was after nine 11 that like, 
I wanted a life of service and social change. And so that was like the perfect integration, if you will, of like my professional life and, and of my sort of um, my commitment to social change. And, and that, that didn't obviously transpire as we had wished it would, you know, Mm -hmm. um, and so if after anything, that, things have gotten worse since you've started becoming an activist. <laughs> Completely. <laughs> so, right. So like around that time, I quit the biz to become an activist trying to change the world. And all has all has digressed since to your point. <laughs> yeah. um, but, but I went through like many iterations, even as an activist, you know, I was really into to, you know, at first like community service and leadership development and right. It took me a while to, to, to develop a political consciousness. Mm-hmm. It took me a moment to realize that like all the volunteering in the world wasn't actually going to change really big interconnected political systems and that actually if we wanted to change the system we had it we had to get systemic right mm-hmm. um in nature and that's when i started to really organize and and throw down politically so yeah it's a long and winding road <laughs> from you know carrie little carrie Cal, i was carrie ketchum growing up at, at uh, Pel- uh, pelham high where i was a pelican and a lacrosse player and a sock and buskin performer and you know i was the vice president of my class I was also president of the Catholic Youth Organization, oh, right? Nice. From there to like the corporate world, not surprising. But then obviously like 9-11 was like the big diversion. And right. and I've been diverting. I feel like I'm like that movie, Divergent. Mm-hmm. Like I've been yeah. just <laughs> consistently diverging, you know, ever yeah. since. And I think when I last saw you, we I had just filed for my divorce, right? That was like my yeah. big divorce trip, right? So like- You went to so India on a divorce trip, right? I went to India on a divorce trip and lost my identity. You did. For real. And India, <laughs> India robbed you. Robbed me of- Ye- And I, like- The country robbed you. Yeah, it's clear. a metaphor for your whole spiritual experience. Oh my God. And, and, and not <sighs> only that, like I literally went to India praying, right? Um, to let go of the person that I had been and step, <laughs> I shit you not, right? And I went into like Shiva temples before I saw you. And that right. is the prayer that I had for the universe. Like, please let, let, help me to let go of that former life and become. And sure enough, we are sitting at a Shiva temple. Yeah, on Chamundi Hill. On Chamundi Hill. And every single piece of identity, money, power, like Credit everything- cards. Everything All gets robbed. I, let's tell that story now. I, it's amazing because <laughs> in the years ever. and years I've lived in India, and in the years and years Harmony's lived in India, I've never heard of anything like this happening to anybody but you. It was divine. I mean, it, let's be clear. We must have already met. I think mm-hmm. maybe we met at a Tim Ryan dinner in San Francisco. We had already been working together, right. I think, yeah. um, with the Batabi Joyce Foundation. And right. we were doing some of that political lobbying. We had already right. kind of started to have some of those meetings. Yeah. Um, and it's, when I found out you were in Mysore, I was like, hey, I'm coming through. And so, on, okay, on I get my an divorce, email. find myself existential new identity trip. I feel I didn't like you might you might have emailed me that morning, and I Maybe. feel like it was very like, like yeah, I'm like, here. Uh, oh shit! Okay, so <laughs> I had set out the intent that I was going to show you around the city and show you all the things, 
And I showed you the palace and I showed you the, thank you for that, this and that. And I, 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 you know, I don't even remember what we saw, but it's like, Oh, let's go up to the hill. That'll be fun. And then I can get rid of this girl and go back to resting. Cause that's like my main thing in India is to rest as much as possible. Not be like <laughs> sightseeing, sightseeing all day in the heat, you know? And it's like, okay, all right. So we go up to Moody Hill to finish off and be cool. I think we had, I think we had a lunch somewhere. And we're sitting on a rock. And help me if, if this is not your memory of it. Um, but we're sitting on a rock. And I just remember suddenly there being like, or just kind of slowly, organically, there were a lot more people around us than there was before. A lot of flowing uh, robes, saris. And and then it's like, oh, there's really a lot of people here. They're like doing sightseeing on Shimundi Hill. And then a... A lady or a man said, can we take a photo? I was like, and I, I think I even like, like I even said to you, Carrie, it's like, oh yeah, this is the kind of thing that happens here. People want to take photos of you because of your hair and whatnot. So like, let's take a photo. <laughs> so we stood up and we took for a photo and then it was like, oh, oh, well, you guys have a lot of friends. Oh shit. Okay. So now there's like 15 of us standing in a row <laughs> All, you know, cuddled together, hugging, like, yay, happy India photo time with the oh white God. people. And um, they, we sat back down and we left. You had your purse tightly between your legs and we sat back down. I'm a New Yorker. Yeah. yeah. You've been around. You've been around the block. Not your first rodeo in no. New York. Um, and we sat there for another half hour and then you went to go, like, look for your phone or your something. And he said, all my shit's gone. That's how it happened? Exactly. That's exactly how it happened. I actually think I was, I want to say, I can't I can't know this for sure, but I think I was like pitching you the Citizen Well. I think I was talking to you yeah. about like, Citizen Well was like an idea that was coming to life. And, That's right. And I think I was telling you about that. So I, we were like deeply engrossed in like a conversation. But, but what transpires after that, Harmony, you can't bananas. even. I mean, a complete bananas. Because listen, now I am a woman alone <laughs> in India with no money, no passport, no visa, no phone, no nothing. Nothing. Oh my god! And just for, Russell for these, which is for, not helpful. Probably. Except, well, you actually saved the day for 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 the listeners. This is not a good place to be. No, like know. you actually cannot leave the country and you're also not allowed to be there. It's like the right. worst situation. So listen, the nearest embassy was in Chennai, which was like 3,000 miles away. Yeah. And I had no money and I wasn't allowed to even like get yeah, you on can't a even plane. Get, you can't even you can't get even, a train ticket, I don't think. As you a can't get a train. Unless you have a police report. So uh, then we go we on this go to the police adventure, to going to multiple police stations, what do they call and no one would help have, us because we didn't. They didn't have proper. Who has jurisdiction oh, over Chamundi right, Hill. Hill? And nobody knew. <laughs> <laughs> so the, we got to the third police station, and they finally said, "Yeah, yeah, we have jurisdiction over Chamundi Hill." <laughs> well, you had a friend who wrote us a letter. Also, like there was something that oh, happened. Oh, that's right. And you had a friend who wrote us a letter, and they, um, and we handed the letter to the police chief. My friend and- in in Gokulam who owns uh uh he is an Indian who owns a yoga school, and Dylan worked there. Do you remember that yoga school? 
I don't uh maybe. And that guy, I walked in there and you were spending all day on the phone trying to find people to help you. And this guy (laughs) said, oh, yes, the superintendent, this, the police superintendent is my friend. I'll I'll get you a letter. letter. And then he came with us to the police station. And he was like, his father, oh, his father was superintendent yeah that's what it was and like you needed to know someone right like like that's it's not like you know you have like you actually had to know someone who knew someone if you needed to get anything done and so anyway so (laughs) that's just one example but like what transpired was like then I had to get like a car to drive me to the airport which was in Bangalore yes Bangalore yeah right so it's it's, which was like four hours away and 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 I was like waving at you goodbye was terrifying (laughs) it was like oh please it was like everything was like a nightmare and then um and then I get to the airport I don't know if they're gonna let me on I show them this piece of like a piece of tissue paper from the police station (laughs) and we had to beg that guy to do it even then it's like I I don't know if I should do this but then I get to Chennai I, I'm charging like hotels and everything online because I have literally no money. I mean, right. so and many things transpire after that. In addition to oh like God. me going to, I had to go get a new passport. I, there, there, I had like a four-hour window before it closed for three days. I mean, it was like that for the rest oh of the God. weekend. And I'm tuk-tuking all over the place. So while I'm trying to navigate, you know, Chennai to say to get the hell out of the country. I somehow develop a sty in my eye from the dust. No. So at this point, my my eye is literally like a watermelon coming out of my head. I mean, just like it was like one thing after. So anyway, at Friday night, my flight left out of Delhi on Sunday night. I finally get my visa at 8 p.m. on Friday night. I go back to the hotel. I I I I have them take me directly to like a beach resort in um I don't know, like an hour away. I spend like 24 hours like living it up. I'm like, I'm out of here. <laughs> and I end up I pass out in the sun and I literally end up getting third degree burns. <laughs> From the sun? From the sun. I mean, like the whole thing, it was like, by the time I left, I was like, oh my God. I mean, I got back to the United States and I was like, I was like orange. I was like, it was such a a shit show. But listen, like I learned, I have to say, I learned a lot about myself. I learned a lot about what it was, what it was going to be like to be alone. I learned that I could survive. Mm-hmm. survive anything i could figure mm-hmm. out really fucked up situations right like i had to like Fly. talk about ahimsa i had to like fight to yeah. get my ass out of there um so yeah so i like you know i haven't been back to india i'm kind of traumatized but never never, <laughs> never go going back, back. never go- it, but the country it was hates such you. a teacher i mean yeah mm. but i got exactly what i asked for i mean that is just true right i went there you know wanting You know, someone had told me the way they had described India was my first time. They had said, India is the great accelerator. So whatever you Mm -hmm. need to heal or get through, it's going to accelerate. And let me tell you. Yeah, wow. That was for real what happened for me the hard way. I don't know if you you want to talk about this, um, but one of the things that I, I remember you saying to me at the time, which really just blew my mind, was uh, I think it was uh, Representative... Tim Ryan, Senate, yeah. uh, Senate candidate Tim Ryan said to you, "Oh yeah, Carrie, why didn't you call me?" Yes, right. He did say that because I I knew him and and I had told him the story. You know, I don't know months after. He's like, "Why didn't you reach out 
to us, we could have helped you get out of the country. And, and I was like, but you're a representative from Ohio. What are you going to do? And he said, oh, I could have helped. Yeah, he was like, I could have helicoptered you out or something. I don't know. I, I'm exaggerating, but like, but I didn't even, you know, honestly, like that was part of the teaching. Like that wasn't what I was there to do. I was there to get my ass out. Yeah. yeah. You know, and like, and to figure it out and to ask for help. And I had to trust a lot of people I didn't know. Oh. Right? Like you have to trust a lot of people. And, you know, anyway, yeah. so like that was, that was what I was there to do. I was there to like, figure out what I was made of, quite frankly, and mm-hmm. and learn something wow. new and be at like my most uncomfortable edge <laughs> ever in my life. Right. And my mom got a couple phone calls, as did my ex-husband. <laughs> oh, from <laughs> that, you. From me. Not from the FBI. Desperate, okay. desperate, <sighs> like send me money. You yeah. know, like please help me. I'm stuck. You know, which was a terrible <laughs> thing to do to my family. But no, yeah. So like maybe I could have gotten help, right? I knew people, I had connections, um, but no, I had to apparently like, I had to navigate that all by my lonesome. And, but I wasn't alone, right? Like a lot of people, you helped me. I would never have gotten out of my store without you. There were, there were a lot of people that I, along the way I was at, I was waiting on the the line for the visa, um, having no idea what I was supposed to do, a very long line. And it was a Friday. So it was my last chance to get a visa. And some random guy comes up to me and he says, have you filled out your form yet? And I was like, no, I figured I would get the form inside and fill it out. And he goes, come with me. And he takes me a couple blocks away into his house. Oh, Oh, (laughs) you wouldn't do that in New York either. Into his house. And he sits down at a desktop computer and fills the form out for me. Wow. And then walks me back and I get in line and they take me right in. I mean, it was like that kind of stuff. And so, you know, I just had things to learn. And and it is true that like India is going to like, you know, fill in all the gaps, like all the places where you are vulnerable, where you are right unhealed, where you are, uh, where you have something, a lesson to learn or to unlearn. Like I got those lessons in droves there. Yeah. yeah. Amazing. And I have many times over in my life, you know, and I'm grateful for it. You know, I've made lots of mistakes <laughs> and, and I've learned, you know, awesome lessons yeah. and grown from them. And so, you know, I'll take it. I love that about India too, that like, that weird, like synchronicity, but also it's like so mystical in a way, like, like that, like a stranger showing up and taking you to his house to fill it. And like, for no reason, you're just like, why is this happening? (laughs) And it defies everything, you know, right? Yeah. I had to unlearn. I mean, that was, you know, that's why like traveling, especially in such a like self- centered place such mm-hmm. as the United States, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Like, and you think you know everything about everyone because that's how we're trained, like that mm-hmm. we know best. You know, traveling to other places is really essential, I think, to like unlearn and disrupt mm-hmm. that like American exceptionalism that like we think right. we know everything that, you yeah. know, you know, that that feels like a really important part of our process. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, like letting go of of that our way is the best way, but like allowing other ways to, you know, permeate that and yeah. and accepting 
other other viewpoints, other ways of doing something that might not feel comfortable at first. Totally. Well, and like I'm just thinking about like the dominant paradigm of like we have to know everything. I feel mm-hmm. like that's such a like pattern, right? Mm. In at least in in America, all American culture. I call it, I'm calling it all American because I mean <laughs> in America, that's the United States. But like. Yeah. This idea that like we have to know everything and if we don't, we have to fake that we know it. And I, mm. I just see that constantly. They're like, yeah, yeah, I know what you're talking about. Uh-huh, sure, yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. You know? <laughs> and um and and because it's 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 vulnerable yeah. um to say I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. To admit that you don't know when in reality none of us have a clue. Like that's really <laughs> what's happening. And so, like, you know, traveling to other places and doing things you've never done before, right? Yeah. And and I'm even thinking about like what you're describing on your block, right? Like being mm-hmm. around people who have like different lived experiences and different, mm-hmm. you know, political orientations, like that's a great teacher, right? Because it yeah. exposes what we don't know, what we can't possibly understand. And um, and those to me are like the apertures, right? Those are like the mm. spaces where we actually experience the deepest connection, mm. right? In those vulnerable moments of like, I have no, I feel like we're having like an existential moment of that in the world right now where we're yeah. like, what's next? You know, like, yeah. are we going to ever get out of this? Like, is the pandemic ever going to end? You know, yeah. will we yeah. ever be safe again? Um, you know, is, is, you know, what's going to happen to the planet? Like we're facing all of these like deeply terrifying and existential questions. And if we don't build a capacity to be like, I don't know, mm-hmm. it's going to be a very awkward <laughs> And sufferable road for for many of us. And so that's just part of like what I feel like I, especially over the last couple of years with the pandemic, I've just been like building this muscle of like, like conditioning this muscle of like, Mm. I don't know what's coming. I don't know what's next. You know, I don't know what's needed. Mm -hmm. I don't know what another person often needs, right? Because we're having a completely different lived experience of what it is to be alive. And I can like be present with the I don't know. Mm-hmm. Right. And I'm re- and I can also be ready. Right. To me, it's like being ready, readying our minds and our hearts and our bodies and our relationships and our collective and and our structures and our spaces is a really big part of, I think, what's needed mm-hmm. as we sort of face the very uncertain <laughs> future. Right. That that is, you know, revealing itself to us. And so it's like. Can I be with the I don't know and can I be ready is sort of my my favorite yoga stance these days. Yeah. Yeah, sitting in that in that space of uncertainty in that space of of even holding two things that are seemingly opposite to be equally true at the same time. It's not a comfortable space for totally. most people and so they'd either like to be on, you know, one firm side or the other firm side and they want everyone else to be on one firm side or the other firm side yeah. or they're just denying the entire situation. That part. <laughs> that part. And you know when I think about, you know, there's been a lot of debate about the cons- you know the tendency yeah. towards conspiracy theories especially in the wellness community right uh, um, that's a venn and- diagram that's a real venn diagram like <laughs> there's anti-vaxxers the yoga teacher <laughs> this is where they meet yeah that's right, right there that's right yeah. well and not just anti-vax right i mean and um i'm just thinking about like trumpers and right yeah. like all of all of the you know this is a, the pandemic the pandemic isn't really happening the q yeah. stuff yeah. right and, and when i think about like what drives people towards like gr- grasping onto things like that mm-hmm. it's what you're describing it's an inability right a, a mm-hmm. intolerance 
for the I don't know, or it's an inability to like hold one's fear, right? The pandemic mm. was really scary. Yeah. Like we had no idea what was going to happen, right? Yeah. And and if you didn't have a practice or a capacity to be like, to, to be present with the I don't know, you were desperate to, to grasp on to, to anything- an explanation anyone would tell you, right? That right. would quell the discomfort and make you feel something different, right? It's almost like, it's like a, it's like substance abuse almost, right? It's yeah. like, I don't want, I can't feel this anymore. I need to feel good. Tell me what I need to hear to feel good. Exactly. Literally for yeah. 45 minutes, Harmony and I believed that an, a blow dryer would kill COVID. <laughs> we, we spent 45 minutes learning about it. And then we, at the end of that time, discovered it was a hoax. I like, think oh, also the whole time oh, we were like, me. I don't think this is actually No, it makes work. sense. It's heat. <laughs> Heat's going to kill a cold. Totally. Totally. I mean, look, I mean, it, you know, when facing like a deadly pandemic that's killing everyone, right? Like, yeah. like we're vulnerable, right? It's like, yeah. like, totally. like drink, drink bleach. And I was yeah. like, shoot bleach. I'll drink yeah. that, you know, like, you, know what I mean? you can take a light lamp oh and you can cure COVID through the skin. I and mean, that's established medicine at this point. So, you know, like, so like, I just want to name that, like, yeah. it's no wonder, right? Like yeah. that happened. And I think understanding why people are drawn, yeah. right? Like that's the moths thing. to a flame is important because it points us in the direction of what we need to cultivate and build, right? So mm -hmm. that we can stay, you know, in truth, right? right? And stay in present time and stay in connection with one another and not not just deny a pandemic is happening. You know, mm -hmm. we were denying people's humanity, right? We yeah. were denying collective care and, and yeah. essential safety measures. And so like that, that kind of behavior has real dangerous consequences. But when you don't have health care and you don't have uh, a social security net and you don't have an education, that part too, and you don't you don't have basic essential needs, then and you don't trust your government because they're not caring for you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Then a lot of That's a lot of kooky stuff is going to be believed instead. That's absolutely right. And and to me, that having that analysis feels really important, right? Mm -hmm. Like because we exist in systems that don't care of for us. Mm -hmm. yeah. That's just, that's true. Right. Which makes us desperate and vulnerable. Exactly. Um, so the question is, will we invest our energy, right. In conspiracy theories and, you know, and ways to bypass the reality of our current condition, or will we invest our energy? This is, goes back to Ahimsa, or will we, will we actively invest our energy in demanding more? Mm -hmm. of the systems that we're a part of or invest our energy in just like subversively taking care of each other, you know, like bringing exactly. each other meals and, right. and passing out masks and making sure people have water and making sure folks are okay. Like to me, like, you know, like that's the reckoning I think that, mm -hmm. that, you know, we need to have is like, you know, what do we do in the face of this? And, you know, and there are yeah. things to do. Yeah. Yeah. And there's just going to be more things to do. And there's going to be more. <laughs> So, yeah. Somehow that that reminds me of of Phil Hartman's uh, Senate campaign when he was a caveman lawyer, <laughs> and he was talking about you know your cities scare me your lights and electricity I don't understand and frighten me, <laughs> but if you elect me to the Senate I will take down the capital gains tax to improve all of our society, <laughs> and that's kind of how I feel most of the time. It was like I don't know what's going on. 
at all. But that's yeah, the capital. We can start with the capital gains tax. <laughs> yeah, that sounds right. <laughs> God help us all. But I just want to appreciate, I mean, like having, to me, it's like having conversations like this where we're normalizing politics. Right. In a culture that like, like, like is allergic to politics, right? Because it's, for all the right reasons, it's corrupt, it's confusing, there's misinformation, Mm -hmm. there's disinformation, there's coercion, right? There's so much coercion. Um, And so it's like, let's take back the conversation. Mm-hmm. And have it like this in ways that feel like human and in ways that feel relevant to like our everyday lives, right? Yeah. Like I want to survive and I yeah. want the people I love to survive and I kind of want everybody to survive. Like I don't want right. to live in a society where like where folks are left behind, you know? Yeah. I don't I don't really believe in like going to Mars and leaving everyone else behind, you know? Right. Yeah. That feels like a really horrific representation of humanity. Like that's just not the humanity I want to be a part of. And so like you know, you know, who do we want to be? You know, I feel like is a question we should be asking every day. Mm-hmm. Who do we want to be so that we all survive? Who do we want to mm-hmm. be so that we all can be well, right? Who do we want to be so that we're all like thriving and living up to our full potential, yeah. right? Who do we want to be so that we can create like structures and conditions and policies um, that actually take care of people, <laughs> you know, and not make people sick, which is what a lot of, you know, our policies are doing right now. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. Can you tell our listeners where they could find your book and how they can how they American yeah. Detox? American Detox, <laughs> the myth of wellness. The book that's hmm. called American Detox um, <laughs> <laughs> can be found at your cute local indie store. Oh, with, uh, where I want everybody to go and mm. buy their books because um, it's really fun to go to bookstores. But it also can be found, you know, on like big book housing places like Barnes and Nobles and Target and Walmart and <clears throat> Amazon. Amazon. <clears throat> and um, he'll, he'll, he'll be fine. Be here tomorrow. <laughs> if our yeah, civilization exactly. dies today, he oh will be God. fine. <laughs> oh my God. Um, so you can buy the book anywhere. And and one of the things I've been encouraging folks to do is to like start a book club because oh, there's this book is idea. really dense. It's intense. And every chapter has like questions for inquiry and oh. calls to action and tons of resources. And so if you go to our website, Website, which is americandetox.co, C-O. Mm-hmm. you can sign up for the book club and there are meditations that accompany each chapter. You can, there's a facilitation guide for how to host a book club, but this book is meant to be consumed in community. It's, it's deep, it's complex, um, it's heavy at times. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, um, it's reckon, it's, you know, it invites a reckoning, I think on many different levels. And so it's much more fun to like have your friends over drink coffee or whatever you're drink of choices and talk about a chapter and talk about a chapter by chapter and like just do the grappling in relationship with one another and um and then do the organizing right with one another which is like the point of this book i book i wrote this book because i want people to wake up and i wanted to to give people a resource to Mm -hmm. understand what's happening and what we can do but i really want people to organize like that's i want people to like get together in small circles and start to have really hard conversations about what's in the way of our collective well-being and what they can do about it. So there are lots of invitations and tools in this book for how you can do that. Amazing. Amazing. What a radical approach to having a book in the first place. Yeah, Yeah. I love it. Thank you. You really are a wellness disruptor. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> or just a pain in the ass. But I'll take it. <laughs> and yoga well, activists, you can yeah. put the ahimsa into your your byline yeah. now. Put the ahimsa in your activist. In, in, That's awesome. In right? hindsight, that day in India was my favorite day in India. So thank you for that. <laughs> oh my God. Best thing that's ever happened. Thank you for the solidarity in that moment. I mean, I talk about like being your most lost, vulnerable, desperate self. Oh my God. Like you were the person that was there with me in that moment. And I would never have gotten through it without you. So thank you. Awesome. So crazy. Thank you both yeah. so much for this conversation. I'm grateful. It was thank our fav- one of our favorites for sure. Yeah. And you're just me also. vibrant. So thank you so much. Thanks so much, y'all. Time Genius is a live online experience that will catapult your joy, focus, and accomplishment fast. You will see results in a hurry right away. If you're feeling constantly drained, distracted, overstressed, it is not your fault. Millions of smart, hardworking people are getting sucked into a toxic, soul-crushing culture of feeling constantly scrambled, scattered, exhausted, burnt out, never seeming to get anything significant done. We are crunched for time and we're feeling it. In Marie Forleo's Time Genius program, you are going to get a fail-proof and flexible system that shows you step-by-step how to take back control of your time Take back control of your wealth and your life and reject this time stress trap that most of the world is stuck in. When you sign up to Time Genius through me, you will also get the added bonuses for no extra cost of joining my intimate mastermind group that is focused solely on creating the best time habits for you and your schedule. We are going to look at how to make your dreams and your goals come to life using Marie's Time Genius program. You'll also get the added bonus of the Purpose Planning and Breathwork Workshop, and we're going to set a new vision for how you spend your time so you can design the life you want, the one that's going to nourish your spirit and feed your heart so that you can create clarity and engagement that comes from living your very best life when you've reclaimed your time. I don't want you to be spread so thin that your health is impacted, your wealth is impacted, your joy and your quality of life is going down. I want you to have the time for all the things you want to do in your life to make those dreams come true and to live the life that you want, that you dreamed you were going to have. We need to stop self-sabotaging and stop the behaviors that are keeping us stressed out, feeling rushed and out of control and really allow ourselves to consciously create the schedule that we need, that we want, so that we can do all the things that we need to do and that we want to do. So jump into my mastermind where you will be fully immersed in the experience of time genius so that you won't just learn the material, but you'll live it. You will go beyond the five core training modules and you'll get live video group coaching with me, with Marie, and a team of other mentor coaches to help guide you through the program. It's going to be amazing. Don't miss out on this opportunity. 
I would love to see you inside Time Genius. I would love to welcome you into my mastermind group. We're going to have an amazing, incredible finish to 2022. So come on inside. I can't wait to see you there. Thanks for listening to this episode of Finding Harmony. With me, your host, Harmony Slater. You can find out more information on my website, harmonyslater.com. And I look forward to connecting with you again soon. Oh